0: Can't be neutral on the moving train I told y'all before And that was an excerpt from the song "Writings on Disobedience and Democracy" by Vinnie Paz. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at You Can't Be Neutral. You can go to YouCan'tBeNeutral.com, where you can check out all the back episodes. And you can find a link there to send me a message. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up, we have the abstract from a study. This is the minderoo Monaco Commission on Plastics in Human Health. Plastics have conveyed great benefits to humanity and made possible some of the most significant advances of modern civilization in fields as diverse as medicine, electronics, aerospace, construction, food packaging, and sports. It is now clear, however, that plastics are also responsible for significant harms to human health, the economy, and the Earth's environment. These harms occur at every stage of the plastic life cycle from extraction of the coal, oil, and gas that are its main feedstocks, through to ultimate disposal into the environment. The extent of these harms has not been systematically assessed, their magnitude not fully quantified, and their economic costs not comprehensively counted. The goals of this Minderu Monaco Commission on Plastics and Human Health are to comprehensively examine plastics' impacts across their life cycle on one, human health and well being, two, the global environment, especially the ocean, three, the economy, and four, vulnerable populations, the poor, minorities, and the world's children. On the basis of this examination, the Commission offers science-based recommendations designed to support development of a global plastics treaty, protect human health, and save lives. This Commission report contains seven sections. Following an introduction, Section 2 presents a narrative review of the processes involved in plastic production, use, and disposal and notes the hazards to human health and the environment associated with each of these stages. Section 3 describes plastic's impacts on the ocean, and notes the potential for plastic in the ocean to enter the marine food web and result in human exposure. Section 4 details plastic's impacts on human health. Section 5 presents a first-order estimate of plastic's health-related economic costs. Section 6 examines the intersection between plastic, social inequity, and environmental injustice. Section 7 presents the Commission's findings and recommendations. Plastics are complex, highly heterogeneous synthetic chemical materials. Over 98% of plastics are produced from fossil carbon, coal, oil, and gas. Plastics are comprised of a carbon-based polymer backbone and thousands of additional chemicals that are incorporated into polymers to convey specific properties such as color, flexibility, stability, water repellents, flame retardation, and ultraviolet resistance. Many of these added chemicals are highly toxic. They include carcinogens, neurotoxicants, and endocrine disruptors such as phthalates, bisphenols, per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS, brominated flame retardants, and organophosphate flame retardants. They are integral components of plastic and are responsible for many of plastic's harms to human health and the environment. Global plastic production has increased almost exponentially since World War II, and in this time, More than 8,300 megatons of plastic have been manufactured. Annual production volume has grown from under 2 megatons in 1950 to 460 megatons in 2019, a 230-fold increase, and is on track to triple by 2060. More than half of all plastic ever made has been produced since 2002. Single-use plastics account for 35-40% to of current plastic production, and represent the most rapid-growing segment of plastic manufacture. Explosive recent growth in plastics production reflects a deliberative pivot by the integrated multinational fossil carbon corporations that produce coal, oil, and gas, and that also manufacture plastics. These corporations are reducing their production of fossil fuels and increasing plastics manufacture. The two principal factors responsible for this pivot are decreasing global demand for carbon-based fuels due to increases in green energy and massive expansion of oil and gas production due to fracking. Plastic manufacture is energy-intensive and contributes significantly to climate change. At present, plastic production is responsible for an estimated 3.7% of global greenhouse gas emissions, more than the contribution of Brazil. This fraction is projected to increase to 4.5% by 2060 if current trends continue unchecked. The plastic life cycle has three phases, production, use, and disposal. In production, carbon feedstocks, coal, gas, and oil are transformed through energy-intensive, catalytic processes into a vast array of products. Plastic use occurs in every aspect of modern life and results in widespread human exposure to the chemicals contained in plastic. Single-use plastics constitute the largest portion of current use, followed by synthetic fibers and construction. Plastic disposal is highly inefficient, with recovery and recycling rates below 10% globally. The result is that an estimated 22 megatons of plastic waste enters the environment each year, much of it single-use plastic, and are added to the more than 6 gigatons of plastic waste that have accumulated since 1950. Strategies for disposal of plastic waste include controlled and uncontrolled landfilling, open burning, thermal conversion, and export. Vast quantities of plastic waste are exported each year from high-income to low-income countries, where it accumulates in landfills, pollutes air and water, degrades vital ecosystems, befouls beaches and estuaries, and harms human health. Environmental injustice on a global scale. Plastic-laden e-waste is particularly problematic. Plastics and plastic-associated chemicals are responsible for widespread pollution. They contaminate aquatic, terrestrial, and atmospheric environments globally. The ocean is the ultimate destination for much plastic, and plastics are found throughout the ocean, including coastal regions, the sea surface, the deep sea, and polar sea ice. Many plastics appear to resist breakdown in the ocean and could persist in the global environment for decades. Macro- and microplastic particles have been identified in hundreds of marine species in all major taxa, including species consumed by humans. Trophic transfer of microplastic particles and the chemicals within them has been demonstrated, although microplastic particles themselves appear not to undergo biomagnification. Hydrophobic plastic-associated chemicals bioaccumulate in marine animals and biomagnify in marine food webs. The amounts and fates of smaller microplastic and and nanoplastic particles in aquatic environments are poorly understood, but the potential for harm is worrying given their mobility in biological systems. Adverse environmental impacts of plastic pollution occur at multiple levels from molecular and biochemical to population and ecosystem. MNP contamination of seafood results in direct, though not well-quantified, human exposure to plastics and plastic-associated chemicals. Marine plastic pollution endangers the ocean ecosystems, upon which all humanity depends for food, oxygen, livelihood, and well-being. Coal miners, oil workers, and gas field workers who extract fossil carbon feedstocks for plastic production suffer increased mortality from traumatic injury, coal workers pneumoconiosis, silicosis, cardiovascular disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and lung cancer. Plastic production workers are at increased risk of leukemia, lymphoma, hepatic angiosarcoma, brain cancer, breast cancer, mesothelioma, neurotoxic injury, and decreased fertility. Workers producing plastic textiles die of bladder cancer, lung cancer, mesothelioma, and interstitial lung disease at increased rates. Plastic recycling workers have increased rates of cardiovascular disease, toxic metal poisoning, neuropathy, and lung cancer. Residents of fence line communities adjacent to plastic production and waste disposal sites experience increased risks of premature birth, low birth weight, asthma childhood leukemia, cardiovascular disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and lung cancer. During use and also in disposal, plastics release toxic chemicals including additives and residual monomers into the environment and into people. National biomonitoring surveys in the USA document population-wide exposures to these chemicals. Plastic additives disrupt endocrine function and increase risk for premature births, neurodevelopmental disorders, male reproductive birth defects, infertility, obesity, cardiovascular disease, renal disease, and cancers. Chemical-laden MNPs formed through the environmental degradation of plastic waste can enter living organisms, including humans. Emerging, albeit still incomplete evidence, indicates that MNPs may cause toxicity due to their physical and toxicological effects, as well as by acting as vectors that transport toxic chemicals and bacterial pathogens into tissues and cells. Infants in the womb and young children are two populations at particularly high risk of plastic-related health effects. Because of the exquisite sensitivity of early development to hazardous chemicals and children's unique patterns of exposure, plastic-associated exposures are linked to increased risks of prematurity, stillbirth, low birth weight, birth defects of the reproductive organs, neurodevelopmental impairment, impaired lung growth, and childhood cancer. Early life exposures to plastic-associated chemicals also increase the risk of multiple non-communicable diseases later in life. Plastics' harms to human health result in significant economic costs. We estimate that in 2015, the health-related costs of plastic production exceeded $250 billion globally and that in the USA alone, the health costs of disease and disability caused by the plastic-associated chemicals PBDE, BPA, and DEHP exceeded $920 billion. Plastic production results in greenhouse gas, GHG, emissions equivalent to 1.96 gigatons of carbon dioxide annually, Using the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA's social cost of carbon metric, we estimate the annual cost of these GHG emissions to be $341 billion. These costs, large as they are, almost certainly underestimate the full economic losses resulting from plastics' negative impacts on human health and the global environment. All of plastic's economic costs and also its social costs are externalized by the petrochemical and plastic manufacturing industry and are borne by citizens, taxpayers, and governments in countries around the world without compensation. The adverse effects of plastic and plastic pollution on human health, the economy, and the environment are not evenly distributed. They disproportionately affect poor, disempowered, and the marginalized populations such as workers, racial and ethnic minorities, fence line communities, indigenous groups, women, and children, all of whom had little to do with creating the current plastics crisis and lack the political influence or the resources to address it. Plastics harmful impacts across its life cycle are most keenly felt in the global south and small island states and in disenfranchised areas in the global north. Social and Environmental Justice, SEJ, principles require reversal of these inequitable burdens to ensure that no group bears a disproportionate share of plastic's negative impacts and that those who benefit economically from plastic bear their fair share of its currently externalized costs. Conclusions It is now clear that current patterns of plastic production, use, and disposal are not sustainable and are responsible for significant harms to human health, the environment, and the economy, as well as for deep societal injustices. The main driver of these worsening harms is an almost exponential and still accelerating increase in global plastic production. Plastic's harms are further magnified by low rates of recovery and recycling, and by the long persistence of plastic waste in the environment. The thousands of chemicals in plastics, monomers, additives, processing agents, and non-intentionally added substances include amongst their number known human carcinogens, endocrine disruptors, neurotoxicants, and persistent organic pollutants. These chemicals are responsible for many of plastics' known harms to human and planetary health, The chemicals leach out of plastics, enter the environment, cause pollution, and result in human exposure and disease. All efforts to reduce plastics hazards must address the hazards of plastic-associated chemicals. Recommendations To protect human and planetary health, especially the health of vulnerable and at-risk populations, and put the world on track to end plastic pollution by 2040, This commission supports urgent adoption by the world's nations of a strong and comprehensive Global Plastics Treaty in accord with the mandate set forth in March 2022 resolution of the United Nations Environment Assembly, UNEA. International measures such as Global Plastics Treaty are needed to curb plastic production and pollution because the harms to human health and the environment caused by plastics, plastic-associated chemicals, and plastic waste Transcend national boundaries, are planetary in their scale, and have disproportionate impacts on the health and well being of people in the world's poorest nations. Effective implementation of the Global Plastics Treaty will require that international action be coordinated and complemented by interventions at the national, regional, and local levels. This Commission urges that a cap on global plastics production with targets, timetables, and national contributions be a central provision of the global plastics treaty we recommend inclusion of the following additional provisions the treaty needs to extend beyond microplastics and marine litter to include all of the many thousands of chemicals incorporated into plastics the treaty needs to include a provision banning or severely restricting manufacture and use of unnecessary avoidable and problematic plastic items, especially single-use items, such as manufactured plastic microbeads. The treaty needs to include requirements on extended producer responsibility, EPR, that make fossil carbon producers, plastics producers, and manufacturers of plastic products legally and financially responsible for the safety and end-of-life management of all the materials they produce and sell. The treaty needs to mandate reductions in the chemical complexity of plastic products, health protective standards for plastics and plastic additives, a requirement for use of sustainable non-toxic materials, full disclosure of all components, and traceability of components. International cooperation will be essential to implementing and enforcing these standards. The treaty needs to include SEJ remedies at each stage of the plastic life cycle, designed to fill the gaps in community knowledge and advance both distributional and procedural equity. This commission encourages inclusion in the Global Plastics Treaty of a provision calling for exploration of listing at least some plastic polymers as persistent organic pollutants, POPs, under the Stockholm Convention. This commission encourages a strong interface between the Global Plastics Treaty and the Basel and London Conventions to enhance management of hazardous plastic waste and slow current massive exports of plastic waste into the world's least developed countries. This commission recommends the creation of a permanent science policy advisory body to guide the treaty's implementation. The main priorities of this body would be to guide member states and other stakeholders in evaluating which solutions are most effective in reducing plastic consumption, enhancing plastic waste recovery and recycling, and curbing the generation of plastic waste. This body could also assess trade-offs among these solutions and evaluate safer alternatives to current plastics. It could monitor the transnational export of plastic waste, it could coordinate robust oceanic, land, and air-based MNP monitoring programs. This commission recommends urgent investment by national governments in research into solutions to the global plastic crisis. This research will need to determine which solutions are most effective and cost-effective in the context of particular countries and assess the risks and benefits of proposed solutions. Oceanographic and environmental research is needed to better measure concentrations and impacts of plastics of less than 10 micrometers and understand their distribution and fate in the global environment. Biomedical research is needed to elucidate the human health impacts of plastics, especially MNPs. Summary This commission finds that plastics are both a boon to humanity and a stealth threat to human and planetary health. Plastics convey enormous benefits, but current linear patterns of plastic production, use, and disposal that pay little attention to sustainable design or safe materials and a near absence of recovery, reuse, and recycling are responsible for grave harms to health, widespread environmental damage, great economic costs, and deep societal injustices. These harms are rapidly worsening. While there remain gaps in knowledge about plastics, harms and uncertainties about their full magnitude, the evidence available today demonstrates unequivocally that these impacts are great and they will increase in severity in the absence of urgent and effective intervention at a global scale. Manufacture and use of essential plastics may continue. However, reckless increases in plastic production and especially increases in the manufacture of an ever-increasing array of unnecessary single-use plastic products need to be curbed. Global intervention against the plastic crisis is needed now because the costs of failure to act will be immense. And once again, that was just the abstract of the Minderu Monaco Commission on Plastics and Human Health report. This full report is over 130 pages long, with about 90 pages additional of footnotes. So it's about 215 pages uh, for the full report with all of the footnotes. Next up is a piece written by Adrienne Mattei. This is published at theguardian.com. When it comes to keeping off extra pounds, watching what we eat may not be enough. We have to keep an eye on our food's packaging, too. Rates of obesity among U.S. adults have increased from 14% in 1980 to 42% today. And half the world is expected to be overweight or obese by 2035, with children and teens facing the sharpest increase in obesity and its consequences. Because data doesn't support the idea that overeating and lack of exercise are squarely to blame, the scientific community is exploring other factors that may contribute, including metabolic disruption caused by eating products packaged in plastic. For a study published last year, researchers at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology set out to determine what chemical compounds exist in 34 common plastic items that touch things we eat such as yogurt cups, juice bottles, styrofoam meat trays, gummy candy packages, and plastic wrap used for produce and cheese, as well as items often found in kitchens, like polyurethane placemats and sponges. Of the 55,000 chemicals the researchers found in these items, only 629 were identifiable, with 11 being known metabolic disruptors such as phthalates and bisphenols, which interfere with our body's ability to regulate weight, among other troubling health effects. However, when exposed to in vitro human cell cultures, studies have not used human or animal test subjects. Far more chemicals than the identified 11 metabolic disruptors triggered adipogenesis, the process underlying obesity in which cells proliferate and accumulate an excess of fat quote we're quite certain that there are many chemicals in plastic products that disrupt metabolism but we just couldn't identify all of them Martin Wagner a study co-author said strikingly Wagner and his colleagues found that a third of all common products they tested contain chemicals that trigger the adipogenic process although we are exposed to them daily Most of these mystery chemicals are unknown, unstudied, and unregulated. Plastics are made when chemical compounds from refined fossil fuels are mixed with various other, often toxic, chemicals to promote desired characteristics like flexibility and water resistance. We now understand that chemicals don't just stay put in the material, but can leach from packaging into our food. This March, scientists at McGill University Prove that the carcinogenic and obesogenic bisphenol BPS found in food labels, such as produce stickers, can, quote, migrate through packaging materials into the food people eat. Stefan Bayan, an associate professor of food science and agricultural chemistry, said in a release, For years, experts have been cautioning against plastic food containers, particularly for hot or oily foods, which can render the plastics unstable and increase the risk of chemical leaching. The scientists I speak to frequently argue that we need to start reducing our exposure to plastic without waiting for more slow-moving research to unequivocally prove that plastics in our food products' blood and organs are risk factors for bad health outcomes. Wagner is no exception. While he cannot make a causal link between metabolism disrupting chemicals in plastic and the obesity epidemic, quote, how much evidence do we need before we do something right? Wagner asks. There is potentially positive news from the Norwegian study. While some plastic products carried chemicals that made fat cells proliferate, other similar products did not. For instance, PET, the transparent plastic used mainly for water bottles, doesn't contain metabolism-disrupting chemicals, and is in fact relatively chemically simple. Some polystyrene styrofoam fruit trays had an obesogenic effect on cell cultures, but others didn't. That means some plastic producers, whether intentionally or not, are making less harmful forms of plastic. If industry manufacturers were transparent about the entire suite of chemicals present in their products, consumers could choose plastics with safer formulations and better overall industry safety standards could be developed. Really, reducing our plastic exposure should be our overall goal. The FDA's approach to regulating chemicals used in food packaging has been described by experts as, quote, woefully outdated. And there's a chance that even plastic producers are not sure what chemicals end up in the products they make. But it's clear that these plastics and the chemicals associated with them are making their way into our bodies by transference from packaging, but also in the form of microplastics, with humans eating an estimated 44 pounds of plastic in our lifetimes. When we think about cutting junk out of our diets, the culprits shouldn't just be candy and soda, plastic needs to go Two. And here's a piece written by Tom Perkins. This is published at theguardian.com Recycled and reused food contact plastics are quote, vectors for spreading chemicals of concern because they accumulate and release hundreds of dangerous toxins like styrene, benzene, bisphenol, heavy metals, formaldehyde, and phthalates, new research finds. The study assessed hundreds of scientific publications on plastic and recycled plastic to provide a first-of-its-kind systematic review of food contact chemicals in food packaging, utensils, plates, and other items, and what is known about how the substances contaminate food. Quote, Hazardous chemicals can accumulate in recycled material and then migrate into foodstuffs, leading to chronic human exposure, the study's authors wrote, noting that bottles made from polyethylene tetraphthalate PET plastic as a common example. The study comes amid debate over how to reduce the amount of plastic waste filling up the globe. The petrochemical industry, some governments, and many environmental groups have published for improvements to the recyclability of plastic. Though some types of the material can be recycled, most cannot, and the study highlights how improving recyclability of the material comes with risks. It identified 853 chemicals used in PET recycled plastic, and many of those have been discovered during the last two years. The most commonly detected were antimony and acetaldehyde, while potent toxins like 2,4-DTBP, ethylene glycol, lead, tetraphthalic acid, bisphenol, and cyclic PET oligomers were also most frequently found. Moreover, the chemistries of plastic can be something of a black box, In the U.S., there is very little regulation about what goes in the material, and the EU only requires light testing to determine which chemicals are in plastic. The study characterizes plastics as, quote, very complex materials containing hundreds of different synthetic compounds, which are more often than not poorly characterized for their hazard properties. Some chemicals found in recycled plastics cannot be identified, the analysis notes, adding to the risk of repeatedly recycling and accumulation. Quote, It's not safe, and as the quality of recycled plastic decreases, the amount of potential contaminants goes up, said Bergit Kweke, the study's lead author and senior scientific officer with the Zurich-based food packaging forum. The data indicates chemicals are added or created during the recycling process while 461 kinds of Volatile Organic Compounds, VOCs, were detected in virgin plastic. Some 573 were found in recycled material. Gweke said it was difficult to say why that occurred, but it could stem from the addition of chemicals during the recycling process, the addition of chemicals from the contaminated recycling stream, reactions among among chemicals, or from plastic taking up additional chemicals when used the first time. The review also highlighted widespread illicit recycling in which industry uses non-food grade plastic made with flame retardants and other toxic compounds in recycled food packaging. Despite strict regulations on which types of plastic can be used for food contact, studies identified recycled electronics in the U.S., South Korean, and European markets. There are clear indications of brominated flame retardants that came from your old TV, computer, keyboard, Gweke said. It's certainly not legal. The review identified similar problems with reusable plastic items for food contact, such as kitchen utensils, water bottles, tableware, baby bottles, water dispensers, tubing of milking machines, and more. Food from plastics first use or detergents used to clean the material can be absorbed and cause chemical changes and contamination in reused material as can heating it or otherwise using it in a way it is not designed to be. Consumers can protect themselves by avoiding plastic as much as possible, bringing non-plastic carryout packages to restaurants and moving food products from plastic packaging to containers made of safer materials. But ultimately, the most effective remedy is the elimination of plastic and the societal use of safer materials, the study's authors wrote. Quote, a shift towards materials that can be safely reused due to their favorable inner material properties could be a promising option to reduce the impacts of single-use food packaging on the environment and of migrating chemicals on human health, the paper states. Here's a piece published at pluralistic.net. Removing from some of the health effects of plastics to the whole problem of quote unquote recycling plastics. This is written by Corey Doctorow. Dow Chemicals plastered Singapore with ads for its sneaker recycling program, promising to turn old shoes into playground tracks. But the shoes it collected in its quote recycling bins were illegally dumped in indonesia this isn't an aberration it is how nearly all plastic recycling has always worked plastic recycling's origin story starts in 1973 when exxon scientists concluded the plastic recycling would never ever be cost effective parenthetically Exxon knew about this too. Exxon sprang into action. They popularized the recycling circular arrow logo and backed anti-littering campaigns that blamed the rising tide of immortal toxic garbage on people's laziness. Remember the campaign where an Italian guy dressed like a Native American shed a single tear as he contemplated plastic litter? Funded by the plastic industry as a way of shifting blame for plastic waste from the wealthy, powerful corporations who lied about plastics recycling to the individuals who believed their lies. When I was a kid in Ontario, we had centralized, regulated, reusable bottle deposits. Beer and soda bottles came in standard sizes, differentiated by paper labels, that could be pressure washed off. When you were done with your bottle, you returned it for a deposit, and it got washed, and return to bottlers to be refilled again and again and again. And I am also old enough to remember this process. We would constantly, uh, we, would, we would buy our drinks, our beverages from the beverage barn down the street. We would bring them home, we would drink them, we would rinse the bottles, and we would place the bottles in the back hall in the little cases that were designed to hold the bottles and we would bring them back down to the beverage barn for recycling. And the recycling process for many of those bottles was not to crush them and turn the the old glass into new glass, but was to exactly what what Corey described, return those to the companies to be refilled and resold. It it, It was an incredibly effective and incredibly good process. Doesn't mean it didn't have its own challenges and problems and uh, its own impacts, but it certainly had some big benefits over the single-use plastics we are flooded with today. After intense lobbying from soda companies, brewers, and the plastics industry, that program was replaced with curbside blue boxes that promised to recycle our plastic waste 90% of the plastics created has never been and will never be recycled. Today, the plastic industry plans on tripling the amount of single-use plastic in use worldwide. You know those ads from companies like Blue Triton, formerly Nestle Waters, that promise you that single-use plastic bottles are, quote, 100% recyclable and can be used for new bottles and all sorts of new, reusable things? Blue Triton is a private equity-backed roll-up that has absorbed most of the bottled water companies you're familiar with, including Poland Spring, Pure Life, Splash, Ozarka, and Arrowhead. When they were sued in D.C. for making false claims about their recyclable water bottles, their defense was that these were, quote, non-actionable puffery. According to Blue Triton, when it described itself as, quote, a guardian of sustainable resources and a company who, at its core, cares about the water, it was being, quote, vague and hyperbolic. With this high standard for plastics recycling, Dow's Singapore scam shouldn't come as a surprise. But it seems to have surprised the government of Singapore. Writing for Reuters Joe Brock, Yudi Kaya Budiman, and Joseph Campbell described how they caught Dow... Red handed. The method is actually pretty straightforward. Reuters hid tracking devices in cavities in the soles of sneakers, dropped them in one of Dow's collection bins, and then followed them. The shoes were passed on to Dow's subcontractor, Yoke Impex PTE Limited, who sent them hopping from island to island throughout Indonesia until they ended up in junk markets. Not all the shoes, though. One pair was simply moved from Dow's collection bin to a donation bin at Singaporean Community Centre. Of the 11 pairs that Reuters tracked, not one ended up at a recycling facility. So much for Dow's slogan, others see an old shoe, we see the future. Dow blamed all this on York Impex, but didn't explain why its quote recycling program involved a company whose sole trade is exporting used clothing. Dow promised to cancel its deal with Yoke Impex, but Yoke Impex's accountant told Reuters that the deal would remain in place until the end of the contract. Yoke Impex, meanwhile, shifted the blame to the low-wage women who sort through the clothing donations it takes from across Singapore. Indonesia bans bulk imports of used clothes on the grounds that used clothes are unhygienic, displace the local textiles industry, and shipments contain high volumes of waste that ends up in Indonesian incinerators, landfills, and rivers. In other words, Singaporeans thought they were saving the planet by putting their shoes in Dow bins, but they were really sending those shoes on a long journey to an unlicensed dump. Dao enlisted school children in used shoe collection drives, making upbeat videos that featured students like Zhang Yujia, boasting that they contributed 15 pairs of shoes. Dao does this all the time. In 2021, Dao's, quote, breakthrough technology to turn plastic waste to clean fuel in Idaho was revealed to be a plain old incinerator. Also in 2021, in India, A Dow program to, quote, use high-tech machinery to transform the plastic from the Ganges into clean fuel, quote, was revealed to have ceased operations, but was still collecting plastic and promising that it was all being turned into fuel. Dow operates a nearly identical shoe recycling program in neighboring Malaysia and did not return Reuters' request for comment as to whether the shoes collected for recycling in the far more populous nation were also being illegally dumped offshore. The global business lobby loves the idea of personal responsibility and its evil twin, caveat emptor. Its pet economists worship the idea of revealed preferences, claiming that when we use plastic, we may claim that we don't want to have our bodies poisoned with immortal toxic microplastics, that we don't want our land and waters despoiled, but we actually love it. Because otherwise, we'd quote, vote with our wallets, for something else. The obvious advantage of telling people to vote with their wallets is that the less money you have in your wallet, the fewer votes you get. Companies like Dow have used their access to the capital markets, a fancy phrase for rich people, to gobble up their competitors, eliminating, quote, wasteful competition and piling up massive profits. Those profits are laundered into policy, like replacing Ontario's zero-waste refillable bottle system with a, quote, recycling system that sent plastics to the ends of the earth to be set on fire or buried or dumped in the sea. The ruling class's pet economists have a name for this policy laundering. They call it regulatory capture. Now when you hear regulatory capture, you might think about companies that get so big that they are able to boss governments around with the obvious answer that companies need to be regulated before they get too big to jail. But that's not how elite economists talk about regulatory capture. For them, capture starts with the very existence of regulators. For them, any government agency that proposes to protect the public from corporate fraud and murder inevitably becomes an agent of the corporations it is supposed to rein in. So the only answer is to eliminate regulators altogether. This nihilism lets rich people blame the rest of us for their sins. If you didn't want your children to roast or freeze to death in the climate emergency, you should have sold your car and used the subway that we bribed your city not to build. Nihilism is contagious. Think of the music industry. Before Napster, 80% of the music ever recorded was not for sale, banished to the scrap heap of history and the vaults of record companies, who paid farcically low sums to their artists. During the file-sharing wars, listeners were excoriated for failing to pay for music, much of which wasn't for sale in the first place. But today, fans overwhelmingly pay for Spotify, a streaming service that notoriously pays musicians infinitesimal sums for their work. Spotify is a creature of the big three labels, Sony, Universal, and Warner, who owns 70% of all the world's recorded music copyrights and 65% of all the world's music publishing. The rock-bottom per-stream prices that Spotify pays were set by the big three. Why would the labels want less money from Spotify? Simple. As co-owners of Spotify, they make more money when Spotify pays less for music. Musicians have a claim on the money they take out of Spotify as royalties. But dividends buybacks, and capital gains from Spotify are the labels to use as they see fit. They can share that bounty with some artists, all artists, or no artists. Not only that, but the Big Three's deal with Spotify includes a, quote, most favored nation clause, which means that the independent artists who aren't under Sony UMG Warner's thumb have to take the rock-bottom rate the Big Three insisted on. Likewise, the small labels who compete with the Big Three The difference is that none of these artists and small labels have massive portfolios of Spotify stock, nor do they get free advertising on Spotify, or free inclusion on hot Spotify playlists, or monthly minimum payouts from Spotify. The idea that we shop at the wrong kind of monopolist in the wrong way is a recipe for absolute despair. It doesn't matter whether you listen to music with the big tech-owned monopoly service, YouTube, or the big content-owned monopoly service, Spotify. The money you hand over to these giant companies goes to artists the same way that the sneakers you put into a Dow collection bin goes to a recycling plant. Think of the billions of human labor hours we all spent washing and sorting our plastics for a recycling program that didn't exist and will never exist. Imagine if we'd spent that time and energy demanding that our politicians hold petrochemical companies to account Instead, at the end of Break 'Em Up, Zephyr Teachout's outstanding 2020 book on monopolies, Teachout has some choice words for, quote, consumerism as a theory of change. She writes that if you're on your way to a protest against a new Amazon warehouse, but you never make it because you waste too much time looking for a mom and pop stationers to sell you a marker to write your protest sign, Amazon wins. The problem isn't that you shop the wrong way. Yes, by all means, support the creators and producers you care about in the way that they prefer. But keep your eye on the prize. Structural problems don't have individual solutions. The problem isn't that you have chosen single-use plastics. It's that in our world, everything for sale is packaged in single-use plastics. The problem isn't that you've bought a subscription to the wrong music streaming service. It's that labels have been allowed to buy all their competitors, creators' unions have been smashed and degraded, and giant accounting scams by big companies generate minuscule fines. The good news is that after 40 years of despair inducing regulatory nihilism and vote-with-your-wallet talk, we're finally paying attention to systemic problems. With a new generation of trust-busting radicals, working around the world to end corporate impunity. Dow is a repeat offender. A repeat, repeat offender. Christ's sakes, they're the linear descendants of Union Carbide, the company that poisoned Bhopal. They shouldn't be trusted to run a lemonade stand, let alone a recycling program. The same goes for big tech and big content companies and the markets for creative labor. These companies have repeatedly demonstrated their unfitness, their habitual deception, and immorality. These companies have captured their regulators repeatedly, so we need better regulators and weaker companies. The thing I love about Teachout's book is that it talks about what we should be demanding from our governments. It's a manifesto for a movement against corporate power, not a movement for responsible consumerism. That was the template that Rebecca Giblin and I followed when we wrote Chokepoint Capitalism, our book about the brutal, corrupt, creative labor market. We have a chapter on Spotify, multiple chapters, in fact. For our audiobook, we made that chapter a Spotify exclusive. It's the only part of the book you can get on Spotify. And it's free. The Last Beach Cleanup and Beyond Plastics released a study last year This is the real truth about the U.S. plastic recycling rate, 2021, U.S. facts and figures. The United States Environmental Protection Agency, U.S. EPA, hasn't reported U.S. recycling rates since 2020, when they estimated the 2018 plastic recycling rate to be 8.7%. The EPA did not publish an update for 2019 as expected in 2021. In the absence of updated EPA figures, the plastics and products industries are still promoting recycling as an effective solution to plastic waste and pollution. Although the plastics industry reported a significant drop in the recycling of post-consumer plastic waste in April 2022, they blame the decrease on COVID instead of admitting that plastic waste exports, which are counted as recycled without any proof, had significantly declined due to import restrictions by countries trying to protect their environment from America's plastic trash. Even when the plastics industry's own data shows a serious decline, they continue to claim that plastic recycling will work someday if consumers just try harder to recycle. To be clear, the high recycling rates of post-consumer paper, cardboard, and metals Prove that recycling can be an effective way to reclaim valuable natural material resources. The problem lies not with the concept or process of recycling, but with the material itself. It is plastic recycling that has always failed. Even when millions of tons of waste plastic were still being exported to China each year, plastics recycling never managed to reach 10%. Despite the stark failure of plastics recycling, The plastics, packaging, and products industries have waged a decades-long misinformation campaign to perpetuate the myth that plastic is recyclable. We can't be fooled any longer by illusory circular economy of plastic schemes promoted by companies and the trade associations, consultants, and NGOs that they fund. We must use sound science, credible data, and economic facts to adopt legitimate plastic waste and pollution reduction strategies to make real progress at serious scale now. Based on the facts detailed below, the current 2021 U.S. plastic recycling rate is estimated to be between 5 and 6%. Factoring in additional losses that aren't measured, such as plastic waste collected under the pretense of recycling, that are burned, The U.S. true plastic recycling rate may be even lower. For example, plastic waste collected for recycling is sent to cement kilns and burned in Boise, Idaho and Salt Lake City, Utah. The relentless focus on the future of potential for recycling to reduce plastic waste and pollution flies in the face of the hard facts. Plastic waste generation is increasing in the U.S. up from 60 pounds per person in 1980 to 218 pounds per person in 2018, a 263% total increase. Not one single type of plastic food service item, including the polypropylene cupped lids that Starbucks touts as recyclable, has ever been recyclable, per the FTC Green Guide legal definition. Toxicity risks and recycled plastic prohibit, quote, the vast majority of plastic products and packaging produced from being recycled into food-grade packaging. The expansion of virgin plastic production is keeping the prices of high-quality new plastics low in comparison to higher-cost recycled plastic. And advanced chemical recycling fails in recycling post-consumer mixed plastic waste due to insurmountable contamination, environmental, and economic barriers. Looking at the full picture, plastic recycling has never lived up to the promises made by the plastics and products industries, and it never will. These facts show that the only thing the plastics and products companies have successfully recycled are their failed promises on plastics recycling. The paltry 5-6% U.S. plastic recycling rate in 2021 should be a wake-up call to the false promise that plastic recycling is a credible solution to plastic waste and pollution. It's time to implement real solutions, particularly the reduction of single-use plastic food service items that have the highest likelihood of polluting our environment. A Brief History of U.S. Plastic Waste Exports and Recycling Rates We've seen promises, goals, ambitions, and aims to increase plastics recycling and reduce the number of plastic bags they hand out, repeatedly by the plastics and product companies, their trade organizations, and the NGOs they fund for the past 30 years. In 1992, the American Plastics Council, now part of the American Chemistry Council, pledged to increase recycling of rigid plastic containers to 25% by 1995. However, when they failed to meet that promise in 1996, it was quietly and conveniently forgotten. Historically, the U.S. EPA has published the Advancing Sustainable Materials Management Facts and Figures Report with details of the fate of municipal waste annually on November 15th. The most recent data was published by the U.S. EPA in November 2020 for the year of 2018. As shown in Figure 1 from 1980 through 2018, plastic waste generation has increased fivefold in the U.S., from 7.4 to 35.7 million tons per year, while the plastic recycling rate has never reached 10%. The peak recycling rate reported by the U.S. EPA was 9.5% in 2014, although that number also counted U.S. exported material as recycled when it was largely burned or dumped. The 9.5% included 2.1 million tons of plastic waste to non-OECD countries, of which 1.2 million tons were sent to China. Since 2018, the U.S. plastic recycling rate has declined, along with declining exports of waste, as China and other countries have closed their ports to America's unrecyclable and polluting trash exports. The U.S. plastic recycling rate peaked at a dismal 9.5%, including exports, and is now in an irreversible decline to eventual insignificance. I think it probably was uh, insignificant to start. Plastic waste exports previously counted as recycled plastic are decreasing due to import bans by China and Turkey and contamination limits set by countries under the Basel Convention Plastic Waste Amendments. According to the U.S. plastic waste export data, Shown in Figure 2, total U.S. plastic waste exports decreased from 1.84 million tons in 2017 to 0.61 million tons in 2021. The downward trend in plastic waste exports is a positive trend given the harms the plastic waste exports have caused in receiving countries as documented in over 100 reports and investigations. The U.S. must take responsibility for managing – its own plastic waste. The source reduction of plastic waste through light weighting of plastic packaging that's been touted by the plastics industry as another way to reduce plastic waste has also been a failure. Figure 3 shows the increase in per capita plastic waste generation over the same time frame from about 60 pounds per person per year in 1980 to 218 pounds per person per year in 2018. Plastic waste generation per person has grown in the U.S. because many new types of single-use plastics are served to consumers. Some of the plastic products were falsely marketed as being recyclable, spurring deceptive advertising lawsuits won against major brands, including Keurig and eight major product companies. Plastic has replaced other packaging materials, paper, metal, and glass, that are truthfully recyclable, giving consumers no choice but to buy products packaged in plastic waste. It's worth contrasting the failure of plastic recycling with the success of paper recycling over the same time frame. As shown in Figure 4, the U.S. paper recycling rate increased from 21.3% in 1980 to 68.2% in 2018. There are two key factors in estimating the U.S. plastic recycling rate. Weight of total plastic waste generated in million tons per year and weight of plastic waste recycled in million tons per year. The plastic recycling rate percentage equals the recycled weight of plastic recycled divided by the total waste generated. While there is general consensus on the approximate amount of plastic waste recycled by the U.S., scientists and waste engineering experts believe that the U.S. EPA is significantly underreporting the total amount of plastic waste generated per year. In the 2020 report by the U.S. National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, and in previous reports by waste engineering experts, the U.S.'s plastic waste generation is estimated to be significantly higher than that reported by U.S. EPA. Instead of a plastic waste generation rate of 34.9 million tons as reported by EPA in 2016, The experts report the actual plastic waste generation rate is about 46.2 million tons, 42 million metric tons, per year. The experts raise an important point. Recycling reported by the EPA assesses the material collected for reprocessing in the U.S. rather than the final conversion into new materials. The plastic recycling process itself wastes a significant amount of the collected plastic material. Facts provided by the beverage and plastics industry Prove that 30 to 36% of the collected polyethylene tetraphthalate or PET bottles are wasted in the recycling process. For example, the new state-of-art PET plastic recycling facility opened by Carbon Light in 2020 has material loss of 36%. The new PET bottle recycling facility opened in Mexico in 2022 by Coca-Cola and Alpla will waste 30% of the incoming PET bottle material. 2018 National Association for PET Container Resources' NAPCOR report on PET beverage bottle recycling stated that about a third of the bottle material collected is thrown out due to contamination and process losses. The estimated 5-6% U.S. domestic plastic recycling rate in 2021 should be a wake-up call to stop pretending that plastics recycling is a viable solution to plastic waste and pollution. It's time to implement real solutions, including bans on single-use plastics, water refill stations, and reusable container programs for food and beverage service. Single-use plastic items are made of low-value material that makes them widely available but economically impractical to collect and recycle. Legislative action to restrict single-use plastic bag distribution has resulted in a reduction of plastic bag pollution around the world. Bans on other single-use plastics in food service applications have been adopted by the European Union, California, County of Los Angeles, and many other governments as detailed by the Plastics Policy Inventory compiled by the Duke Nicholas Institute. These bans should be expanded across the world as part of the United Nations Global Treaty to End Plastic Pollution. Proof that bans and fees work to reduce plastic waste and pollution around the world. United Kingdom and Ireland, according to a 25-year study from the United Kingdom Government's Center for Environment, Fisheries, and Aquaculture Science, there are significantly fewer plastic bags on the seafloor after European countries introduced bag fees. The study was based on 39 independent scientific surveys of the distribution and abundance of marine litter between 1992 and 2017. Sales of single-use carrier bags dropped by 95% in one year in Maine supermarkets since the introduction of the five pence charge. Australia after major supermarkets banned plastic bags in 2019 their usage fell by 80 percent across the nation. Suffolk County, New York the number of bags found polluting shorelines fell steeply in the first year after a five-cent bag fee was enacted. Austin, Texas The Austin Resource Recovery Study found that the single-use bag ordinance was successful in reducing the amount of plastic bag litter in the city. Austin Parks Foundation reported a 90% reduction in plastic bag litter in the first six months after the ordinance had been passed. Unfortunately, Austin's and other local bag ordinances in Texas have since been nullified due to a Texas Supreme Court decision. San Jose, California Plastic bag litter decreased 89% in the storm drain system, 60% in creeks and rivers, and 59% in city streets, just one to two years after a single-use plastic bag ban took effect. A proven strategy to cut plastic beverage bottle waste and pollution is to make it easy for people to use fewer disposable bottles by providing public water refilling stations. Cities and their water agency benefits from installing water stations which offer a filling function in addition to a drinking fountain, providing residents with free sources of high-quality drinking water and leading to a reduction in plastic waste. For example, Eastern Municipal Water District in Southern California has installed nearly 120 water filling stations at schools and popular community facilities. The successful use of 21 hydration stations The Los Angeles Convention Center has stopped the waste of 150,000 plastic water bottles and led to a ban on single-use plastic bottles throughout the facility to celebrate Earth Day, 22 April. Every airport, train station, bus station, public building, and public space should install water refill stations. Water filling stations provide free, high-quality drinking water to the public without any of the downsides of single-use plastic waste and pollution. Reusable container programs for food and beverage service. As detailed by Upstream Solutions, the science shows that reuse clearly beats single use in the environmental metrics on which they've been compared. Greenhouse gas emissions, water consumption, resource extraction, waste generation, litter generation, and plastic pollution. Companies like Costa Coffee in the UK, who have listened to consumers and accepted the science and economic benefits of reuse, are now offering reusable cup programs that reward consumers with a free beverage after just four purchases. At Ross's Cafe at Bennington College, students and staff are only served coffee and tea if they provide their own reusable cups. There are no single-use beverage cups available. There is a small shelf where cups purchased from local garage sales are kept in the cafe if a customer has forgotten to bring their mug or is visiting. The customer is expected to wash that mug and return it. Bringing your own reusable cup has become second nature on this college campus. Another half-dump truck full of U.S. plastic waste has entered the ocean in the 10 minutes it's taken you to read this report. Proven solutions that will reduce U.S. plastic waste and pollution already exist and can be swiftly enacted. The success of single-use plastic bans, water refilling stations, and reusable food and dishware can be extended worldwide. It's time to recognize the truth and accept what the credible facts and science tell us. Plastic recycling is neither a safe nor realistic solution to reducing plastic waste and pollution, In the U.S. Next up is another piece from The Guardian. This one written by Layla Tahiri. Rubbish seems to be everywhere you look. As one of the leaders of a community wetlands group in northwest London, I've witnessed a cormorant diving into a bobbing flotilla of plastic, shores made up of plastic, and a heron starving to death due to red nylon tangled around its beak. Last month, a new disease caused solely by plastics was discovered in seabirds. And in February, our group, Friends of the Welsh Harp, removed four tons of rubbish from a river in the surrounding woodland. Our rivers are not only open sewers, they're also open dustbins that lead to the sea. You'd think, based on this, that I'd feel angry at those who litter, that I'd resent them. But I don't, and I believe you should resist that temptation, too. Let me explain why. I investigated why people litter as part of a psychoanalytic studies, MA and found that on an individual level, littering is kind of revenge on society. It's a litmus test of how people are feeling and judging by what I see on a daily basis, many people are feeling alienated, disconnected, and excluded. They are angry and taking it out on the world. Is that any surprise when local communities are broken or non-existent, their deep local knowledge lost, and connection to nature severed? In a time of poly-crisis, climate breakdown, cost-of-living crisis, assaults on democracy, threats to the NHS, negative feelings about the world and yourself have got to go somewhere. Nature, exposed, unprotected, wild, and often neglected, is a perfect place to dump those rubbish feelings, whether that's doing it physically with litter or going on a walk to de-stress. The impulse to litter comes from a feeling that we cannot really affect the world negatively or positively. After all, what impact can one individual have compared with a polluting company, let alone a whole polluting country? It comes from a lack of belief in the power of the individual to affect change, which in itself is rooted in feelings of despair and hopelessness. Such feelings are understandable when the scale of the environmental crisis is as staggering as it is now. When we assume the moral fault lies only with the litterers, we let those creating the systemic problems off the hook. After all, littering exposes our economic model for what it is, profit-driven, unaccountable, and amoral. Littering is fueled by manufacturers that continue to push hard-to-generate waste for profit, In the 1950s, a speaker at a plastics conference announced to delegates that, quote, your future is in the garbage wagon. The public were actually taught by these profiteers to throw things away so they can keep making and selling. Fast forward to today and plastic production is set to triple by 2060. If we really want things to change, if we want our green and blue spaces back, we need real legislative change on plastic packaging. Yet as local authorities and government agencies become even more cash-strapped, it's convenient for them to ignore all this and blame the individuals who litter and fly-tip, then leave the cleanup to volunteer groups like ours. It suits them, too, to minimize the problem. The Canal and the River Trust, CRT, which has guardianship of all Britain's waterways, including the Welsh Harp, played down the plastics pollution crisis by describing it as, quote, unsightly rubbish. Natural England, the government's advisor for the environment, supports our litter-picking efforts, quote, to improve the aesthetic of these areas. What can be done? Shaming and denouncing litterers' attitudes does not work. It leads to stubborn refusal and entrenches litterers more deeply in their position, reinforcing their negative behaviors. Rather than a blaming moralistic attitude towards them, we might do better adopting a more thoughtful and understanding stance. Hello, how are you? is a much better starting point than don't be a tosser. If any anger is justified, it should be directed at profiteering manufacturers and our throwaway culture. We must help people overcome the ecological alienation that ultimately leads them to mistreat their environment. Overcoming this alienation means forming attachments, which means caring. To be caring, we need to feel cared for. Our local authorities, government, and environmental groups need to be open and honest and show that they understand and care. They should face reality, recognize the staggering scale of issues, and apologize for past neglect. An open, honest society mourns the fact that the earth can't endlessly give, that it has limitations. It recognizes that it must engage in actual, practical care of humans, wildlife, and plant life, through thoughtful action and collaboration. It must support volunteer groups, such as ours, that are doing meaningful eco-care work. Like many other caring professions, our work is undervalued. As individuals, when we reconnect with nature and enjoy whatever green and blue spaces we have locally, preferably with others, love soon blossoms. As with human relationships, You soon find yourself caring and even feeling responsible. You find yourself heartbroken when something bad happens. You fight for these places and know you just can't live without them. If you can get some bureaucratic organizations to feel the same way too, I'll buy you a drink. And finally for this episode, uh, despite the clear evidence that our individual actions will not, Solve these problems. Um, creating new systems that allow us to consume in ways that are less harmful is ultimately beneficial. This piece is written by Saira Bajwa and is published at nextcity.org. Fresh out of an abusive relationship, Andrea O'Reilly was ready to give her twin boys a new life. But facing a cost-of-living crisis atop a personal crisis, the prospect of buying the basics they would need, clothes, bottles, bouncers, a changing table, a baby monitor, car seats, strollers, and more, was daunting. That's when the Philadelphia mom decided to try her neighborhood Buy Nothing group, where hundreds of locals gave away and exchanged items for free. I went to the Buy Nothing page, and the compassion and generosity of everyone was amazing, says O'Reilly, who asked to be quoted under a pseudonym amid a legal battle for custody of her children. Not only did community members provide everything she needed at the time for free, they continued to keep an eye out for anything that might be useful. Some dropped off snacks and toys unprompted founded in 2013 as an experiment by anti-waste advocates rebecca rockefeller and lisel clark the buy nothing project was created to help communities reshape their relationship with stuff and with one another a decade later that simple idea has snowballed into a growing network of seven million members across thousands of tight-knit local groups helping usher in a broader movement of more conscious consumption radical reuse and low waste lifestyles. The main motivation for most members of these groups is to reduce waste for a variety of reasons, whether it's environmental or they simply don't want to throw their belongings away because of an attachment and would rather see it go to someone else, says Gail bargan whose doctoral research at Boston College focuses on the spread of such online gifting communities that give away and exchange everyday items locally. But the founders believe the initiative has the ability to transform an increasingly consumerist society. Our vision for the Buy Nothing Project is to have a hyper-local gift economy in every community on Earth within the next five years. So neighbors can give, ask, and share their gratitude with each other daily, co-founder Liesl Clark tells Analyst News. This is how we hope to bring about social, economic, and environmental change. Indeed, in joining such groups, participants quickly begin to tap into something deeper. People found that after a while of using the groups and witnessing all the generosity and seeing all the comments, it made them feel like they were part of a community, says Bargain de Riguez. Beyond sustainability and convenience, Buy Nothing groups hosted on Facebook or the project's own app emphasize that all exchanges must be free. Quote, all gifts must be given without any strings attached and without any expectation of reward other than the joy of giving. Read the Buy Nothing Project's official rules. But they don't call it philanthropy. We are a gift economy, not a charity. We see no difference between want and need, waste and treasure. The online gift economy has taken off with a variety of manifestations, including the nonprofit Free Cycle whereby nothing's founders met Facebook marketplace and so-called mommy groups where mothers offer up items their own children have outgrown members connect and give away their things to others who could use them or put out requests for items they are specifically interested in finding the impact of watching these connections unfold some users say makes these groups even more valuable than their environmental economic in anti-consumerist utility while most participants aren't looking for long-lasting community connections, the sense that their neighbors are helping one another or being generous does contribute to a sense of belongings to a neighborhood where people are kind and willing to help each other, Bargan de says. Seeing and experiencing strangers' compassion and collaboration can help build a strong sense of communal belonging, and even researchers have found encourage individuals to pay forward the kindness that they have witnessed. Being knit into a local web of sharing, which we each play a vital role, is more fulfilling than the lonely hoarding of stuff for our own private use. Buy Nothing's co-founders Rockefeller and Clark write in their 2021 book. They describe their vision for an alternative global economy of interconnectedness, reminiscent of how trees tap into a network of fungi to exchange resources. Buying everything disconnects us from one another. Buying nothing plugs us in. Neighborhood gift economies offer a blueprint for rebuilding our social fabric at a time when Americans' trust in institutions and in one another is at an all-time low. Americans' sense of isolation and hopelessness, meanwhile, is alarmingly high. In 2021, about 36% of Americans reported feeling serious loneliness. It's a finding that has led researchers at Harvard's Making Caring Common project to urge reimagining and reweaving our social relationships, and remembering that we have commitments to ourselves, but we also have vital commitments to each other, including those who are vulnerable. Lori Frankel-Sussman, an event planner turned stay-at-home mom, knows firsthand the power of the Buy Nothing movement to bring neighbors together. After a recent pantry clean-out, she posted a photo on her local Buy Nothing group of a few excess items. Pancake mix, peanut butter, diced peaches, yeast, hot sauce, This looks like a Food Network challenge, one neighbor joked in the comments. When group members piped in with potential meal ideas, Sussman suggested they both divide the items, cook a meal, and post the results for the group to vote on. I was amazed at what they came up with from random items from my pantry cleanup, and it was really entertaining, she says. Her simple post turned into a local cooking competition complete with judges, with nearly 70 neighbors cheering contestants on and voting on a winning meal a spicy peanut pork belly and peach empanada with peach salsa, plus chocolate and peanut butter glazed donuts and homemade peach ice cream for dessert. Even though I'm a vegetarian, that's the one I'd want to try, one commenter voted. Bravo, this was so much fun, another wrote. Such wholesome exchanges, Sussman says, are the norm for the warm, welcoming community in our Buy Nothing group. Exchanging of used items was once confined to thrift stores, yard sales, and trash day curb hauls. It's now easy to search for used items, often being given away for free, in an online neighborhood group or an app. Social media brings the garage sale to your phone and allows users to rethink what's worthy of donation. Online gifting groups extend the boundaries of what people are willing to give and take, such as open food or even home-cooked food, hygiene products, and a bunch of random things that would never be accepted in donation centers, Bargain de says. More recently, the Buy Nothing project has worked to harness its power to deliver humanitarian aid to vulnerable individuals. When one woman in Hartford, Connecticut requested sewing machines for newly resettled Afghan refugee women on her local Buy Nothing group, she was able to collect and distribute 25 working sewing machines within a few weeks. In 2015, Clark, one of the Buy Nothing Project co-founders, tapped into the movement's networks to deliver medical and rescue supplies directly to the Nepalese villages after a 7.8-magnitude earthquake hit the country in 2015, and bureaucratic red tape tied up foreign aid. We've seen many times that this special strength of Buy Nothing communities is meeting specific personal wants and needs so that people who have lost everything get just what they're looking for to start building back, the Buy Nothing Project says on its site. Back in Philadelphia, O'Reilly's neighborhood group proved the adage that it takes a village to raise a child. Once her custody battle is sorted out, she says she hopes to host a party and invite over all the women who showed her community, compassion, and strength while she was going through a difficult time. This is the best use of social media I have seen, In a very long time, she says. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com or you can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can also listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. And here is music from the sugar cubes for your moment of Zen. This is Dear Plastic. Thanks for listening.